0: Hello and welcome to High Heels and Heartache. I'm your host, Kendall Ann Bird. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have a great episode for you. Before we dive in, I just have a small favor. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, if you could hop on to iTunes and rate and or review High Heels and Heartache, that would be huge because that's the way that um, other survivors would be able to find the podcast and be able to find all of the resources um, that are available through the episodes. So if you could please do that, I would really appreciate it. Okay, moving on. Today's episode, I'm speaking with Casey Gwynn and he's the president um, for the Alliance for Hope International. Um, Casey has been a warrior and an advocate for survivors of domestic violence for decades. And one of the reasons I wanted to have him on was because I think it's really important for survivors to hear that there are people out there in the world who are working hard for you, who are setting up trauma informed resources for you, who are setting up things like the Family Justice Center Alliance so you can get the things that you need. I know from personal experience that As a survivor of domestic violence, you can feel really isolated and alone and kind of hopeless. And one of the reasons why I thought it was so important to have Casey and other members of his alliance on was so that you can hear that hope is such an important part of what they do and that there are resources available to you. And... Casey's been on Oprah. Uh, so if you've ever wanted to hear someone's experience about Oprah Winfrey, here we go. So coming right up is my interview with the Alliance for Hope International. Okay, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I have several people on the line today who are making a huge difference in the world. Um, They are all part of the Alliance for Hope International. I have the president and co-founder on the phone, Casey Gwynn. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks, Kendall. Great to be with you.
0: I have Natalia Aguirre, who is the director of the National Family Justice Center Alliance. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having
0: us. And William Ackerman is also on the line, and he is today's um, MVP because he's been setting this all up for us. So thank you so much, William, for being here as well. Great to be here. (laughs) So the first thing I'm going to talk about is Casey's history because he has a long history of really being a warrior for survivors of domestic violence. Um, Like I said, he's the current president and co-founder of Alliance for Hope International. He began his career in San Diego, with the San Diego City's attorney's office prosecuting domestic violence offenders, and he founded and led the city's first child abuse and domestic violence unit from 1986 to 1996. In 1996, he was elected as the San Diego City Attorney, where his leadership is widely credited for an astounding 90% drop in domestic violence cases in San Diego since 1985, which is an astonishing statistic and really goes to, uh, as a credit for all of the great work you do, Casey. Casey. In 2002, Casey saw his vision of a comprehensive center for services to victims of family violence become a reality in San Diego as he led the effort to open the nationally acclaimed San Diego Family Justice Center with professionals from 25 agencies together under one roof. After founding Alliance for Hope International in 2003, Casey and Gail Strack expanded the Family Justice Center model across the nation and the world to include 130 open and developing centers. Now here's a crazy statistic, you have served over 150 oh I'm sorry, 150,000 survivors each year, which is so many lives that you're changing. Um, Casey is also the founder of Camp Hope America, which provides outdoor challenge-by-choice summer camps to children who have experienced domestic violence and or child abuse, providing trauma-informed mentorship as well as love and hope to thousands of kids each year. Recently, Casey received the Ronald Wilson Reagan Public Policy Award from the U.S. Department of Justice, Office for Victims of Crime. And your new book, Casey, Hope Rising, How the Science of Hope Can Change Your Life, is coming to stores this fall. So thank you so much, Casey, for being here today.
1: Thanks, Kendall. It's great to be with you.
0: Before I go ahead and introduce Natalia, I was just wondering, Casey, what, what, what drew you to want to work with survivors of domestic violence?
1: Well, I believe in divine appointments in life and I think this work for me has been a divine appointment. I I grew up in a home impacted by violence and abuse. I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, when you're growing up in a family where there's dysfunction or violence, you kind of just think all families are like that and so it's it seems normal. But uh, when I became a prosecutor, I I was actually sick uh, the day that Everybody got to pick their special assignments the very first week that I was at work. And I came back the following Monday after being sick, and every area of interest had been selected in the San Diego City Attorney's Office by the new prosecutors, except for child abuse and domestic violence. And that's how I became the child abuse and domestic violence prosecutor. And I didn't initially come to it from a feminist standpoint. I didn't come from a real passion for it. It just seemed wrong to me that a man would assault or hit or abuse a woman. And my father, though my father was uh, struggled with a lot of issues with discipline with his children, um, my dad, to my knowledge, never hit my mom. So I had never seen anything like domestic violence growing up. So it seemed wrong to me. And Uh, Thankfully, very early on in beginning to handle these cases, a very passionate group of feminist advocates, most of whom were survivors, started to invest in my life and became some of my best friends in 1986, 87, 88. And that's the journey that put me into this, was meeting women who had survived incredibly difficult circumstances and were so powerful and were so passionate. And I felt like I could do something to help. And so that was my beginning. That was 32 years ago.
0: Wow, that really is kind of divine intervention, huh? Think of all the lives that you've changed just because you were sick one day from work and now here you are changing hundreds of thousands of lives every year.
1: Yeah, I'm very blessed to have been able to do this work. And um, when I have written about this in books over the years, I I can name those women, uh, Ashley Walker, who was the founder of the YWCA's Better Women's Services in San Diego, who is still one of my best friends and was the chair of our board for many years. A woman named Joyce Fadley, who worked in sexual assault services in San Diego. A woman named Judy Rowland. a uh, course, Gail Strack, who's now our CEO, played a very powerful role in my life in those early years. Uh, they were really dynamic women who took the time... To challenge me, to educate me, to begin to help me to see my own uh, struggles from having grown up in an abusive home, that I too was a survivor of abuse in a different way, uh, helped me to understand white male privilege and my own entitlement in society and why it was that maybe I didn't end up uh, in jail or prison uh, because of some of the things that um, I could have done as a child or as a teenager, uh, because I had some privileges that young men of color uh, or boys of color don't have in this country. And so that all of that, to me, is just a very humbling piece to this. I certainly have made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I've been very honored to stand side by side with courageous women, most of whom are survivors of different forms of violence and abuse at the hands of men who have held me accountable for the choices I've made, the things I've made a priority in my life. And when I have failed to really understand issues, uh, they've challenged me. And Natalia Geary, who's on this call with us, who's the head of our Family Justice Center Alliance Program, is certainly one of those uh, women. Uh, Natalia has been very much a challenge to me and has been one of those young women that really, I think, represents the future of this movement and our work and even our organization.
0: And that's the perfect place for me to kind of talk about Natalia. Natalia, thank you so much for being here. Um, You joined the Alliance for Hope team September 2011. As part of the leadership staff, you work on several initiatives, but you focus on the Alliance's Creating Pathways to Hope and Healing polyvictimization initiative, which is funded by the Office for Victims of Crime. Your previous work in developing and planning for family justice centers in the United States and Mexico has given you um, a unique experience and understanding of the impact of family justice centers and similar multi-agencies have on the lives of survivors and their children. Before you came to the Alliance team, you worked at the National Alliance for Hispanic Health where you helped carry out the Mobilizing Communities to Reduce Diabetes initiative. You graduated from the University of Southern California with your master's in public administration. And when you're not saving the world, (laughs) you enjoy traveling the world and learning about foreign cuisines and culture. So thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So same question to you. What drew you to helping the survivors of domestic violence?
2: Uh, One of the things I will never forget was my mom explaining why we moved to the United States and really you know, saying women and girls don't always have the same rights abroad as they do in the U.S. And that was a huge motivating factor for my mom to move my entire family and start over here in the U.S. as an immigrant and a child. And having her really emphasize the importance of equality for women and justice and also just explaining that women live and have really difficult situations and are not equals in a lot of different places. And so uh, I think I grew up with that idea and I was fascinated by the journey to human rights and equality and justice and really wanted to find a position and a niche where I could grow And I think Alliance for Hope International has given me the ability to really learn from survivors and be accountable to them and find ways to intersect different types of movements. And, And again, just be accountable to survivors and really listen to the needs that they have and have that be our guiding light in all of the work that we do.
0: That's awesome. And the world is so lucky to have you kind of as one of our lights to, to help survivors. So I think that one thing a lot of survivors feel, even um, maybe when they've just left or they're thinking about leaving their abuser, is it seems like a really high mountain to climb and that there's nobody there that's going to help you. And I think that's what's really fabulous about um, the Alliance for Hope and about the Family Justice Centers is that you have created these buildings that really can speak to all of the different needs that a survivor might have. Um, The first one was opened in San Diego in 2002, and it had 25 separate agencies involved. So Casey, can you talk a little bit about Everything that that center has and and how it all came together
1: It was quite a journey. I was a prosecutor. We uh, started uh, We met in a courtroom in 1987 I was prosecuting a domestic violence case and Gail was the defense attorney and she was very passionate very fiery and the victim was had recanted her story to the police She was back with her perpetrator, um, and Gail obviously felt like she was gonna win that case as a criminal defense lawyer because the victim was recanting her whole statement about what her perpetrator did to her. And at the end of that case, the trial lasted five days. Uh, The jury did convict him of domestic violence. And afterwards, I walked up to Gail and I said, um, I said, you're a very good lawyer, you're very talented, you're very passionate, you're very articulate, but you're on the wrong side. You need to help me. Uh, You should come help me try to stop men who are abusing women in this country, not trying to get them off. And she kind of looked at me like, I hate you. Don't talk to me right now. (laughs) Uh, But I left the courtroom. I told her I was really proud of her. I thought she was a good lawyer and, that she should apply for a job at the San Diego city attorney's office. And I never, I didn't hear from her for months. I didn't have any further interaction with her. I didn't try another case with her. Uh, but four months later, she applied to be a deputy city attorney and no sooner did she get a job as a prosecutor that I asked her to join me in the alcohol abuse violence unit. And our journey began uh, as prosecutors, but we quickly figured out that uh, survivors needed a lot more than a criminal prosecution that Trying to stop the abuser was a noble goal and a good goal and certainly has the potential uh, to help both adult and child survivors of violence and abuse. But, you know, we would get conviction after conviction and then the victims would look at us and say, what now? And early on, Gail and I were pretty ignorant and we would think, well, it's all fixed now. We convicted him. You know, we put him in jail for six months or we sent him to prison or, you know, you should be fine now. And we didn't understand the complexity of the needs of a survivor. And so in those early years, as we were organizing all of that, we quickly figured out that it would be better if we had more services than what the prosecutor's office had to offer. So in 1989, Gail and Ashley Walker and I, we proposed uh, the creation of the San Diego Family Justice Center and thought, why can't a victim be able to come one place for everything? And we were talking to survivors about it and they all said, I wish I could go one place. It sure would be nice if I could go one place and everybody was there to help me. But it, uh, it was an idea whose time had not come. I got laughed out of a meeting with the elected DA and the uh, police chief and the elected sheriff uh, when I proposed the idea in August of 1989 and came back to the city attorney's office and Gail and I kind of said, We can do this anyway. So in 1990 really is when I say that the journey began for us of collaboration because we started inviting agencies to bring staff to the prosecutor's office. We invited uh, Ashley Walker to bring in a civil legal services person, and she brought in a lawyer named Ellie Newman that did restraining orders. We invited Children's Hospital to give us a child trauma therapist, and they did assign a child trauma therapist. So by the end of 1990, we actually had staff from seven agencies co-located in the San Diego city attorney's office. And we were early on figuring out that survivors needed the power of we. They needed a team around them. They, they didn't need just a prosecutor or just a detective or just a therapist. They needed us to actually figure out how to help them together. And so that was really the beginning for me of the journey to the San Diego Family Justice Center. Between 1990 and 2002, it was just figuring it out, and it was an idea whose time had not come. I, it took me running for DA of San Diego County and losing in 1994. Then I ran for city attorney and got elected in 1996. And even then, it took six years after that. I I took a leadership team in the city attorney's office that was one woman and seven men and flipped it, and had seven women and one man on my leadership team when I became the elected city attorney. And Gail was one of those women uh, leading the San Diego City Attorney's Office. And then I tasked Gail with figuring it out. Like, how do you do this? How could you put 25 agencies together in one place? How would it work? Nobody had ever done it anywhere in America in anything. Not not in sexual assault, not in domestic violence, not in child abuse. Nobody would ever done it. And Gail ran that effort for four years and she figured it out. And then we opened uh, in 2002. And I will say that even when we opened, there were lots of people across the country that said this is a stupid idea. It'll never work. It's too complicated. Survivors don't really want that. And what they really want is to go to a domestic violence shelter. What they really want is just to go to one agency where everything can be a secret and confidential and they can get the help they need all alone. And we just continued to believe, Kendall, that survivors needed a community. They needed a a support team. They didn't just need siloed services or individuals and having to go 20 places and tell their story over and over and over again, to all these different agencies, government, non-government agencies. So when we opened, uh, we didn't think it was a national thing. We didn't even think it had anything to do with any place but San Diego. It was just our thing, and we were close to everybody. The shelter, we were very connected to the shelter uh, director. We were very connected to the Rape Crisis Center director. We were friends. We'd worked together in the San Diego Domestic Violence Task Force that we started and then the San Diego Domestic Violence Council. And it was just our thing until uh, January of 2003, uh, four months after we opened, I was invited to be on the Oprah Winfrey Show. And when I was invited to be on Oprah, uh, the whole world changed for us.
0: <laughs> you knew you were onto something then, huh?
1: Yes. Uh, <laughs> I had two days on the national broadcast of the Oprah Winfrey Show. The first day was the, the basic live national show. And then Oprah used to have something called the After Show that aired only on the Oxygen Network, which was her television network. And there were six times in the history of the Oprah Winfrey show that the after show became another national broadcast that aired on national television. And we were one of those six shows. And we were debating uh, how to deal with domestic violence in America. A number of people were part of that show. And Oprah endorsed the Family Justice Center model and did a five minute segment where she profiled the San Diego Family Justice Center. And it was, it was interesting after the after show, I was in the green room and Oprah came in and she kind of pointed her finger at me and she said, I just changed the rest of, her, of your life. And oh, wow. I mean, I wasn't laughing at her, but I kind of chuckled. I thought, you know, I'm married. I have three kids. I'm the elected city attorney in San Diego. I didn't say this to her, but I kind of thought, you didn't really change my life. I mean, it's nice. Who <laughs> doesn't want to be in Chicago in January? Uh, um, I kind of thought, you know, it was, I, and I said to her, I said, it was an honor to be on the show. And she, she kind of got aggressive and she said, you didn't listen to me. I just said, I just changed the rest of your life. And I said, you know, it was an honor to meet you. It was so nice. to." And she kind of rolled her eyes and walked away. And I didn't realize for quite some time that she did change the rest of my life. Because within two years, we'd had site visitors from 77 countries come to the San Diego Family Justice Center. And they all said, we saw you on Oprah. So that, that profiling of our model in January of 2003 by Oprah Winfrey uh, was the transformational moment for us because we were just about San Diego until then. And then it was three months after that that I was invited to the White House to present to Laura Bush, uh, the first lady, and Margaret Spelling, the domestic uh, policy advisor to George Bush, and got to pitch my whole notion of the Family Justice Center along with the heads of all the other national domestic violence organizations who were given five minutes to say what they thought George W. Bush should do about domestic violence in America. And Uh, That was April 2003, and by October, George Bush was announcing the President's Family Justice Center Initiative in the East Room of the White House and introduced me as the leader of it and said, we're going to create these centers in 15 communities, and then we're going to take them across America. And he was so despised and hated by most of the feminist domestic violence organizations, George Bush himself that there was not any support really from the sexual assault or DV movement at the time for what George Bush was trying to do. But what he did do was he gave us a platform and then we had to prove it. And that's what we've been doing ever since is what does it look like in Sitka, Alaska? What does it look like in New York City? What does it look like in Seattle, Washington or Tacoma, Washington or Denver, Colorado? Or what does it look like in a tribal community like Bemidji, Minnesota? And we've been figuring it out. Um, And I will tell you, Kendall, in, in those years, Gail and I have now done over 230 focus groups with survivors in those communities where we go to talk about creating a family justice center all over the all over the country and around the world. And in every group, everywhere we go, when we say to survivors, would you like to go 20 places to get the help you need? Or would you like to go one place where people are really committing to help you? The answer is always, I wish I could go one place where everybody was on my side. And that's become our Clarion call that's become our driving force is survivors saying, Can you can you do this? Can you figure it out? And it's not simple, it's not easy, it's really complicated to get agencies to work together. Everybody likes to do their own thing, cops like to do their own thing, prosecutors like to do their own thing, advocates like to do their own thing, doctors and nurses want to be off by themselves. But when we make it work, when we can get people to set their ego aside and figure out how to really focus on not only helping survivors, but really holding offenders accountable um, for the choices they're making in abusing others. Um, It's magic, and it can save lives, and it can really help us break the cycle of violence and abuse that seems to perpetuate itself from generation to generation to generation in so many families.
0: And I, I think it's really wonderful all how all of those people are working together to help survivors. Um, I went on your website and I just found the uh, Family Justice Center that was closest to where I live. Um, and I was just astounded by everything that was available there. Law enforcement, you know, to help you, legal services, forensic medical exams. So, Natalia, can you kind of chat about... What are the resources that are available sur- f- to survivors at these family justice centers?
2: Yeah, I'd love to. And so as you kind of mentioned in your intro, we have about 130 open family justice centers across the United States and over and several in over 20 countries around the world. And so what we're really proud of is that family justice centers are really are a reflection of their community, right? So we don't offer cookie cutter services across the country, but they're really meant to speak to the needs of the community and also what's available. So depending on your community, there are different services and different leads. Some of our family justice centers are connected to their shelter, so they offer shelter or housing services on site, whether it's transitional or short-term. We have medical services, nurses who help with identifying different types of or forensic documentation of different types of incidents. We also have um, immunization at some family justice centers. Others, you're able to get legal services for your restraining order or immigration support. You're able to see family attorneys in order to solve things like child custody or divorce and dissolution. And so they really do range in services. We have therapists on site that are also able to support. But I think the thing that we as Alliance for Hope International are really proud of is this inclusion and creation of community. Uh, we understand that there are always services in crisis and that people want to support you at that moment. But what we're really proud of is creating a community where you can come and return of, return to and be welcome and loved for who you are. And so a lot of our Family Justice Centers offer really long-term and ongoing services, things like Camp Hope, where your children can also be engaged and be part of and grow. And Things like holistic services like yoga or reiki or singing groups and just support services that help people in a really meaningful way to engage them long.
0: And I, th- I think that that's really important because it's sort of easy to feel really alone during that time. And being part of a community that understands what you're going through is so important for survivors. Mm-hmm.
2: Definitely. We, we definitely see that as a cornerstone to the work that we do. And different centers have engaged survivors in different ways. And we want family justice centers to be spaces for the community to congregate and come together and support you through a journey of healing, which we know many times can take a long, long time.
0: Yeah. So, can you explain a little bit about how these family justice centers that are changing the world kind of grew into the Alliance for Hope International?
1: I'll probably take that one, Kendall. Um, we we began originally after we opened the San Diego Family Justice Center. Um, I was the elected city attorney in San Diego. We created a nonprofit called the San Diego Family Justice Center Foundation. And the purpose of the foundation was only to raise money to support the San Diego Family Justice Center. That was kind of the beginning of the journey. So Gail was the director of the San Diego Family Justice Center. I was the city attorney. We started a local camp camp called Camp Hope as part of the San Diego Family Justice Center. And that journey then started to change when President Bush announced the president's initiative. He offered us $1.6 million dollars to start helping other communities to replicate. So we put that money in the San Diego Family Justice Center Foundation. And now it wasn't just about raising money for the San Diego Center. Now we had federal money that was to be used to help other communities start family justice centers. So that began the journey of really changing a local nonprofit for the San Diego Family Justice Center, slowly morphing it into a national nonprofit organization. So we actually changed our name in 2008 to the National Family Justice Center Alliance, and we were pretty much just focused on family justice center work. And then as we got deeper and deeper into starting centers, not just in the United States, but in Mexico and Canada and then Europe and in other places around the world, Uh, We learned more and more about the kinds of things that we we needed to deal with. So, for example, the most dangerous men on the planet strangle and suffocate women. Uh, The rage-filled men that end up being the killers of women in America are primarily chokers and stranglers. They're men who put pressure on the neck of their partner. And so as we started learning that, we started creating specialized programming around how to investigate non-fatal strangulation cases. So many women in high-risk domestic violence situations have been strangled, but they don't even know that that's what it is. They've been choked, but they don't even know that they may have suffered long-term brain injury from it. And so we started learning about strangulation. Then we quickly figured out that we didn't just need a camp in San Diego, that kids were coming into these family justice centers across the country and they're traumatized and Traumatized children uh, really have struggles, and they don't know why they're angry. They don't know why they're depressed. They don't know why they have so many issues and can't, you know, do well in school. And so we started figuring out how to d- take our camp program that was local in San Diego and start replicating it in family justice centers across America. So that led to the Camp Hope America program. And then we started realizing, as Natalia said, that survivors want to be able to advocate for themselves. And some of them want to tell their stories publicly when they, when you tell your story to a police officer very often in the middle of the night, you have no power that that's a very disempowering situation, especially if the officer is not trauma trained, especially if the officer doesn't really kind of honor and respect you. But when you tell your story two years later, Um, when you're out of it and you can look back and see the forces that played out in your life and that you've survived it and that you have a story to tell, now your story is power. And uh, my dad always used to say, a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. And we started realizing that the stories of survivors were powerful, that they could push the Violence Against Women Act forward in this country, that they could cause laws to change. They could cause funders to start caring about this issue. And so that created our Voices program and how survivors could come together to uh, speak publicly, and how we needed to make sure they were safe when they were speaking publicly and they were prepared for that, and the kind of trauma that happens of resharing your story over and over, and how you can mitigate that trauma and how you need to mitigate that trauma. So, each program of the Alliance, whether it's the Training Institute on Strangulation Prevention now, it's Camp Hope America, it's our Voices program, it's what's called our Justice Legal Network, which is our realization that the number one service in family justice centers, number one requested. Services, civil legal services, and a very close second is mental health services. And so we realized that we needed to develop programming around all those. And it was about 2012 when we were realizing we needed to, we were much more than just family justice centers. There's so many components of this model. And it was 2012 when I met a researcher named Dr. Chan Hellman at the University of Oklahoma. And he told me that he was measuring hope. In domestic violence shelters in Oklahoma, and that he was measuring hope in a parent-child center in Tulsa. And I thought, you can't measure hope. Hope is like a emotion. It's just a it's a thing that makes people optimistic and, and hopeful about the future. And he said, No, hope is a science and, and I can measure it. And you should be measuring it in all your programs. And that began a journey for us, a three-year journey of beginning to, to ask the question, is he right? Is that really true that you can measure hope? And how predictive is hope in the lives of trauma survivors? Like higher hope people do better out of cancer, it turns out. We spent three years there learning about the science of hope. And in 2015, we made the decision, we want to be the leading organization in America that produces hope and can measure. And that's when we changed our name to Alliance for Hope International. And it wasn't just a cute name. We really believed that our calling was to be an alliance of entities across the country and around the world that believe that our job is to increase hope in the lives of adults and children who have been impacted by trauma, violence, and abuse, measure it, and then be able to see the outcomes that come when hope rises in people's lives. So that was the journey to Alliance for Hope International. And it took us from a very small local collaborative of the San Diego Family Justice Center in 2002 uh, to now uh, international organization with alliances all around the world with organizations that are trying to bring services together, trying to create teams and collect impact approaches and social change approaches. And we're not one of those organizations that wants to get away from the direct service piece completely. We want to know. We don't just want to go out there and preach it. We want to first do it, prove that it works, and then replicate. So every one of our programs started in San Diego. We proved it worked. We're replicating uh, as best we can around the country and around the world.
0: Can you talk a little bit about um, Camp Hope America? Um, That's just changing the lives of, of so many children who have been exposed in some way to either child abuse, or seen domestic violence. And one thing um, that's really important at these camps is that you do challenge by choice. So can you talk a little bit about what challenge by choice means and kind of how that that goes into the the science of hope?
1: Sure. Well, the first piece is just the reality that uh, kids need things to look forward to in life. And children get robbed of their childhood. And we believe that, uh, in essence, human beings are hope-filled beings. You're born with hope. Uh, You're born with the ability to set goals. Even babies have goals. And they need other people to help them fulfill their goals, whether it's food or care or love. And if their goals are met, if their needs are met, babies are really happy. And if their needs aren't met, uh, babies aren't happy. And so from the beginning, we believe that we're all in essence, hope-filled beings. And over the course of life, many get robbed of hope, Um, whether it's from direct trauma, vicarious trauma, adversity, illness, disease, uh, civil war, uh, difficult challenges you might face in your life, the loss of a parent, people get robbed of hope. And children always get robbed first. Children always get robbed first. And so Camp Hope became our way to give children a pathway forward. If the best we were going to do for kids was, hey, you've come to the Family Justice Center for help. Uh, you're gonna, your mom's going to get to go to a shelter with you. And we're going to prosecute your dad or stepfather or mom's boyfriend and put him in jail. And then we're going to give you a therapist or a mental health professional. And then good luck to you. If that's all we have to offer to kids they're never going to find their pathway to a healthy, successful life. They've got to have things to look forward to. And early on, uh, my daughter, who has worked in the Camp Hope world, said, Dad, the the real job of Camp Hope is giving children their childhood back. And that's our tagline to this very day. Camp Hope America is about giving children their childhood back. And so on the one hand, we're helping kids, we're teaching kids goal setting, how to set goals, how to make different choices and maybe their parents have made or other adults in their lives. The other side of it, we're also helping them navigate their way out of the rage that so many of them have. When you grow up with violence and abuse, you have a ton of internal It You show up as depression. It may show up as apathy or despair in a lot of boys This is where the next generation of rapists and batterers come from in America. They come from kids growing up in homes, either where a dad has just completely abandoned them or they have watched a father abuse women and children in their life. And that produces the rage that is the next generation of abusers. So we figured that out early on in Camp Hope, Kendall, and in San Diego in 2003, when I was teaching kids to wakeboard and water ski at a lake in East San Diego County, I realized that when they got excited about something they could do, they could achieve, they could laugh and have fun. And most of our kids, especially children of color, they didn't know how to swim. And I was teaching them how to wakeboard and go tubing. And I realized that, yes, I needed to teach them how to overcome their fears, to take a choice, a challenge. Like, hey, you can get out there in that tube. You have a PFD on. You have a life vest on. If you fall in the water, you're not going to sink. You're not going to drown. You'll be okay. And if they could overcome that fear, take a challenge, overcome that fear, we would see, like, literally resiliency pop out on their faces. We would see hope. We would see their believe in themselves, kind of just materialized before our very eyes. And so that became this notion of challenge by choice. We talk about kids living in, generally living in a comfort zone, um, then they get into what we call the challenge zone, and then kids can get into something called the panic zone. And when a child is in their comfort zone, they're not really growing. They're not really changing or evolving. When they're in the challenge zone and they're doing something they're scared of, and especially trauma kids... When you grow up in a home with violence and abuse, you have no control over what's happening to you. You have terrible fear, but you can't do anything about it. But in the Camp Hope world, when you're afraid of something, you're afraid of a zip line, you're afraid of a, a ropes course, a climbing wall, and you overcome it, you actually can make choices to overcome that fear, outcomes, courage, and resiliency, and hope. And so that became the challenge by choice philosophy of Camp Hope. We don't make kids do things that they don't want to do, but they themselves, if they can get a little bit over a fear or conquer something that they were afraid of, Uh, suddenly resiliency starts to to rise in their lives and suddenly their sense of goal setting starts. If I can do that, maybe I can do this. If I can achieve that, I can probably do this. And we literally started seeing that happen before our very eyes. So that's the journey. Uh, This summer, Camp Hope America operated in 14 states. We ran 30 weeks of camp in 14 states with nearly 2,000 kids. And next summer, our goal uh, with the support of the Verizon Foundation is to be in 20 states Uh, and have uh, probably close to 4,000 kids in camp. And my big vision is I want to see 20,000 plus kids going to Camp Hope every every summer across America. And this is not just sending kids to camp. Camp Hope America is not just like any other YMCA camp or any other faith-based camp. We have a specialized evidence-based curriculum, a trauma-informed curriculum we work very hard to plan it. We don't run big camps. We generally have 50 to 60 kids a week at our camps. We don't intermingle children who have been witnessing domestic violence or experienced child sexual abuse with kids who have not. We want them to have their own experience and find a bond with kids that have been through the same things as they've been through. And so we've learned a lot of this over the years. And now I, we have the first published research in America to show the outcomes of camping that is trauma-informed and hope-centered. And we can prove it. We have evidence-based, peer-reviewed academic research to prove that we literally are changing the destinies of trauma-exposed kids. And uh, quite frankly, um, in the debates in, the, in Washington, D.C. about how to spend federal money, if we took billion out of the failed criminal justice system in this country and put it into mentoring and camping and support for trauma-exposed kids, we'd empty the prisons in this country in 10 years. We'd empty the mental health facilities in this country in 10 years. Uh, Trauma-exposed kids can overcome it, but they need cheerleaders, they need mentors, they need pathways. And the problem is that a lot of these kids never get those pathways. They never get that opportunity. And they do go on to repeat the cycle either as offenders or in some cases as victims, because you grow up in a home where there's violence and abuse and you may think it's normative. It doesn't, it's not an excuse for the predator. The predator is still responsible for what generally he does uh, to you. But um, if you don't know that you deserve better, and if you don't have people around you cheering for you to pursue your goals, a uh, low hope, um, low hope people tend to be found by predators and power and control human beings look for people that they can control and manipulate uh, and abuse and uh, if you're a high hope person you're much more likely to be able to battle back against that and say i deserve better than this this is not this is not what what i want Um, if you think that this is all you've got in life this is all men are like this this is all only person that's ever going to love me Um, you're more likely to end up staying in that situation for longer than you should. So for us, it's all connected and it all goes back to childhood. In America, we raise our criminals at home. And if we're going to solve this, we got to help those kids when they're young, not wait till they're 35 to put them in prison. We're way too late by then.
0: Yeah, so your your new book that's coming out this fall, Hope Rising: How the Science of Hope Can Change Your Life. What what are you discussing in that book?
1: Well, it's the first book that uh, Chan and I have ever written. Chan Hellman is the head of the Hope Research Center at the University of Oklahoma and the head of all of our research at Alliance for Hope International. Chan is uh, the first person that I ever learned about the science of hope from. And Chan and I wrote this book for the general public so that anybody can understand the significance of hope in our lives. Uh, I didn't know five years ago you could measure hope. I could measure your hope score right now, Kendall. There's a validated index for an adult hope scale. There's a validated index for a children's hope scale. I could measure hope. Uh, we measure hope on our staff uh, at the at Alliance for Hope International. Every year we take people's hope scores. Uh, they're de-identified, so people don't have to share them if they don't want to. But I can tell you that if you work for Alliance for Hope, that on average, uh, your global dispositional hope score goes up each year. We have high hope people working here. And I think every employer in America should be measuring hope in their employees. I think every domestic violence shelter should be measuring it in their survivors because shelters are great. I think a lot of shelters probably do increase hope in the lives of survivors. But I also think there's a lot of domestic violence programs out there that disempower women. They actually take hope away from them by uh, creating rules and you have to do this. And if you don't do this, you're going to get kicked out of the shelter. Or if you don't do this, you know, you're know you going to be in trouble with us or you can't stay here longer than this. There, there, there are things that happen in well-meaning people's efforts to help that are actually taking hope away from people. So the book is just a call to measure hope everywhere and figure out how to increase it. Uh, Gallup's been measuring hope in the school system now for over seven years, and Gallup has discovered the same thing that we've discovered in our research. Higher hope students do better in school than lower hope students. In fact, if you take two students uh, and one student has a higher IQ but a lower hope score and the other student has a lower IQ but a higher hope score, the higher hope student with the lower IQ will do better in school than the higher IQ student with the lower hope score. Hope is the most predictive thing in the well-being of a human being. And so for us, that's what Hope Rising is about. It's educating the general public about it. Um, and it's not, and it's also telling the truth about trauma. Uh, Chan and I um, have two chapters in the book about what's called the adverse childhood experiences study. And the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study is the most significant study ever done on the predictive nature of childhood trauma, on long-term consequences that produce illness, disease, uh, and struggle in people's lives who grow up with trauma, violence, and abuse. And Chan and I both, for the first time in our adult lives, shared our entire stories of trauma and abuse as children. And Chan's a tenured professor at the University of Oklahoma. He'd never told his story even to his wife, but he told it in Hope Rising. And when I read it, I wept. And I then had to tell the rest of my story. I had never told my whole story of childhood trauma either. I'd told some of it, but I'd never told the real truth until I was challenged by Chan to tell my truth. And I did in Hope Rising talk about some things that happened to me as a child that I've disclosed to no one, including my wife. I had to sit down with my wife and kids and tell them, was going to come out in the book about some of my own struggles as a child. Um, but that for me is, uh, is what hope rising is about. It's an honest, it's an honest book about the significance of hope and we all need it and we all die without it.
0: Yeah. So as three people who have had a lot of experience working with survivors of domestic violence, um, is there anything that you would like to say to the survivors that are listening to this podcast today?
1: Well, I think we probably all have something we can say, but um, we, we believe that you are powerful. We believe that you are able. You have overcome incredibly difficult things in your life. And that doesn't make you weaker because of it. It makes you stronger And you deserve now to not only be celebrated, but to have people around you that will believe in you and support you. And if you don't have people around you cheering for you, go find other friends. Uh, Find people that will believe in you and support you and cheer for you. Uh, Because without a doubt, you are the most resilient uh, people that we have ever seen in anything we've ever done. I, I am inspired everywhere I go. Uh, by survivors who have have, have come through so much and yet then get diminished or minimized or ignored by systems and by agencies or patronized or turned into some kind of a mascot. And you are not a mascot. You are incredibly powerful uh, people that deserve now to be celebrated and to use your pain to fuel your purpose Pain can destroy you, pain can be transferred from you to others and hurt other people, or pain can become the fuel that can give you purpose in life. And we believe that probably is more important than anything else, is learning how to take your pain and have it fuel your purpose. It's certainly true in my life. I think it's probably been true in Will and Natalia's life that we have difficulty and struggle and our challenge becomes how do we use it to fuel our purpose in life. To make a difference.
2: Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: Good luck following that one. Yeah, seriously.
1: I think your polyvictimization stuff, though, is y- you've realized that many survivors have never been asked their whole story. They've never been, been able to contextualize a lot of things that have happened to them. And instead, they're viewed as a recipient of a service or this woman needs a restraining order, this woman needs a counselor, or and nobody ever steps back and says, this is normal, how yeah. you're feeling, what you've gone through. I mean, you're having normal reactions to really bad stuff.
2: Tax has happened to people and letting you know that you are loved and you're cared for and that this was not your fault and that there are people who are cheering for you and want to support you and be there for you and that they're will be a time and a place where this will fuel your passion. And if it's not right now, that time will come. And until then, there are lots of people who want to be there for you and support you. And we just are so honored to be in service of you and um, to really use your input and your insight to guide our work. And just thank you for your voice and continuing to push us to be better people, and service providers.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for being on the podcast today. And on behalf of all survivors, I just want to thank you three so much for everything that you do. And you're just changing so many lives and, and saving lives. And we just really appreciate your hard work every day that you do to, to saving us. And I'm going to put in the show notes links to um, everything we've discussed today, um, so people will be able to find you pretty easily. Especially, you know, the Camp Hope thing—I'm sure really has has touched many people who are listening right now.
1: Well, thank you, Kendall. It's an honor to be with you to encourage and support survivors around the country. I was just very excited, um, as he was, to be able to support you and to share the work that we're doing so thank you for the chance for Natalia and for Will and me to be with you today
0: yes definitely well don't worry I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to come back so you're not getting rid of me that easily
1: we're we'd be more than happy
0: (laughs) okay thank you so much
1: thanks so much blessings on you
0: thank you Thanks again to William, Natalia, and Casey from the Alliance for Hope International for being on the podcast today. It was so wonderful to hear your inspiring story of how you're working to help survivors with both trauma-informed decisions and really inspiring with the message of hope, because there is hope for survivors of domestic violence. If you're interested in finding a family justice center near you, I've included a link to the locate portion of that webpage from the Alliance for Hope International on the show notes. I've also included a link to Camp Hope as well as Casey's book um, in case you want to pre-order that. So again, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. If you are in an unsafe or abusive relationship and you need help, please dial the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That's 1-800-799-7233. Again, that number is 1-800-799-SAFE.